Good evening, I'm Angie Arago, and I'm absolutely delighted to be moderator for your Q&A tonight. Our guest is the youngest ever person to win the Academy Award for Direction, and he's also won the BAFTA's David Lean Award for Achievement in Direction. Please welcome Damien Chazelle. Welcome back to BAFTA, Damien. Thank you for coming. And Thanks. congratulations on a, a film that I thought was, you know, amazing, managed to be amaz an amazingly moving character drama, along with really um, immersive peril and space thrills. Um, at, with a British production designer, by the way, who did a great job. Um, I was very interested that this is the first <coughs> especially considering you weren't even born when, when the moon landings were happening, that this is the first film you've directed that you haven't written. And I gather that the producers came to you with the, the story of um, James Hansen's book mm -hmm. on Neil Armstrong. And I wondered if you could tell us what it was about Neil's story that spoke to your own interests and, and was the kind of story you want to tell. And also why, instead of insisting that you should write it, that you opted for... Um, Josh Singer, who was also an Academy Award and BAFTA winner for his script for Spotlight. Uh, well, you know, I, I um, it was just a different sort of uh, uh, a different kind of challenge. Um, uh, you know, adapting this book by uh, by Jim Hansen. It's a great book, uh, biography of of Neil, um, and uh, and the the producers in, in LA they sort of you know approached me. With it, they actually approached me with you know a few projects. This was right after I'd done uh, Whiplash, and um, I hadn't started working on La La Land yet. I had the script for it, but not uh, we weren't shooting yet. And uh, and you know they, they they asked me if I'd be interested in Neil Armstrong. I, to be honest, I wasn't really sure if I was. Um, I didn't grow up a, a you know a space nut. I wasn't um, you know I didn't know much beyond the kind of broad strokes about the NASA uh, uh, missions. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, I started reading some of the book. I started looking at some of the archival materials, um, you know, that are, of which there's so many. And, uh, and maybe it was in the, the headspace I was in after Whiplash. It suddenly kind of seemed, in a weird way, like a similar story to me of, uh, you know, or at least a story that I could connect to about um, the price of a goal and the the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, um, um, that, that in the case of the moon landing, I think maybe history has obfuscated a little bit, you know, uh, swept under the rug, just how difficult this was, how dangerous it was, how controversial at times it was. Um, uh, I think we have a more simplistic, uh, burnished idea of, uh, you know, uh, 50 years later of, of that moment. So, you know, that's, that's what spoke to me, was trying to kind of peel that back and, and look at the reality. Uh, but I knew I needed someone who was going to really be able to dig deep into the research and do a lot of heavy lifting and, and almost be a, a journalist as well as a screenwriter, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, and so I met Josh uh, in Los Angeles, and, um, and he, uh, he was, you know, sort of game to, to, to jump in. And, and, and then, you know, together we just started uh, working on this. And, you know, that, that, that was about five years ago um, uh, now. I gather that you met members of the Armstrong family. Fairly early on, you started workshopping with various people who were collaborators. I wondered what sort of stuff you'd done, what you'd talked about, and how that fed into the, what we've 
what we finally see. Well, it did start with, uh, I guess, what you'd call research, but really sort of boots on the ground research. I mean, the first thing I think we did was just go to Houston, you know, and go to Florida, Cape Canaveral, and start just trying to kind of get a feel for the places where this story was set. Edwards Air Force Base in California, where Neil uh, was a test pilot, as you see in the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, visited his old neighborhood in Houston, his cabin uh, in, uh, in Juniper Hills in California. Um, Ryan and I went up to Ohio, where he grew up, to his childhood farm. Um, and we just started spending a lot of time with his sons, his, his, uh, his ex-wife Janet, uh, who Claire Foy plays in the movie, his, um, uh, his sister, his childhood friends, his colleagues, um, you know, fellow astronauts, uh, uh, Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin and uh, Dave Scott, who flew Gemini 8 with Neil. Uh, basically, everyone we could. Um, we, we, uh, tried to spend time with, and they were e exceedingly generous with us, you know, because um, uh, this was, you know, many years process, and, and um, you know, they just gave us anecdote after anecdote, story after story, um, uh, uh, so many of which fed, the, fed their way into the script in some, in some way, you know, either directly or indirectly. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I uh, during a portion of that time, I was shooting La La Land, but as soon as, as, soon as I was done shooting that, um, I, I, I kind of gathered a bunch of the people I'd made La La Land with uh, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, go with me on this, on this journey. So, so I worked with Mary Zoffrey as the costume designer again, and Lena Sangren, uh, the DP, and, and, um, and, uh, and Justin Hurwitz uh, on the music, and, and uh, you know, just started uh, visualizing it. Um, um, I started just kind of compiling all my research, everything, you know, and, and ideas of images and shots and music selections and paintings and whatever was inspiration into kind of a, a book that just kind of progressively got bigger and bigger and bigger um, um, uh, during, you know, during that time. And that kind of became a little bit of a, that in the script sort of became a little bit of a Bible for all of us uh, uh, to be on the same page. You've said somewhere before that um, your relationship on this with, with Ryan was went way beyond just normal director-actor relationship. Could you discuss the kind of collaborative input or creative input he had in that collaboration? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, it was you know, sort of similar on, on uh, La La Land as well. He, he uh, you know, he's, uh, he likes to do the, the sort of deep dive that I like to do, you know, and in his case, he's diving into his character. He's trying to flesh out that character from the ground up way, way before, you know, a frame of film is shot. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, here, because he was playing a real-life figure and a very, you know, famous real-life figure, I think he felt an added responsibility to, to, to get it right. And, um, and so I remember, you know, uh, he, Josh, and I would often just kind of sit around and talk about um, just, you know, we'd kind of go off on our separate paths and, and research, you know, separate avenues of Neil or Neil's life or that period in history and sort of come back and kind of pool our resources together. Um, and, uh, and a lot of stuff in the movie uh, 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 was stuff that, um, you know, was sort of based on nuggets that Ryan found talking to a lot of people who were close to Neil. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's sort of how Ryan likes to work. It's how I like to wor work too. You know, uh, uh, it's often, uh, you know, on set, you're trying to discover things. You're trying to uh, just have, I, I guess, you know, it's the epitome of a collaborative process, you know, so it's not just, uh, um, you know, it's, it's not just Ryan showing up on the set and saying the lines. Um, uh, it's, it's more about, 
trying to kind of together figure out what each scene can be, uh, what the variations of that scene could be. You know, so often we would do the scripted scene, but then we would go off into improvisation for a while, or we would sort of turn things on its head and you know just try to see what else could work. Um, there's a lot of material in the movie that that's actually from uh, two weeks that we spent before principal photography began that was just sort of improvised shooting around the house with Ryan and Claire and, and the kids. Was that what you called family boot camp? I, I, never, called I never called it family boot camp. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was much more uh, relaxing than that. But uh, uh, there was astronaut boot camp, uh, which you know, I think was you know, more of a boot camp thing, which all the, all the actors playing astronauts went through at, at Houston and, and in Florida, where they had to uh, you know, kind of physically train a little bit and, and, and get familiar with the crafts and zero gravity and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the uh, the family boot camp was really just uh, just trying to play house, you know. It was trying to uh, we ha we had these sets uh, uh, finished uh, early. Um, I made sure that uh, that Nathan Crowley, our production designer, and and Mary uh, on costumes had uh, all those sort of wardrobes and sets uh, done about two weeks before principal photography would begin, so that we could just basically go in there, myself, the actors, and and lean us on camera, just go in and shoot. Uh, and we weren't shooting stuff from the script. We were just shooting ideas that you know came to us, games with the kids, um, you know, uh, ideas that Ryan or Claire might have, um, uh, things I would throw to them. You know, I would just sort of, I was often trying to just tell the kids to you know just go go annoy your parents. You know, uh, uh, you know, I tell Ryan to go in a room and try to work on a flight booklet, and then I you know whisper to one of the kids to go, um, you know. Just try to distract him, put something on his head, um, you know, things like that, and and uh, uh, and then stuff would happen. And, and you do that enough, you know, over the course of two weeks, uh, it starts to become a family. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we wanted it to feel like. He's so tender with the little girl, the baby girl. That was very moving. Yeah. Um, it, it felt like he hadn't just walked on set and picked her up, <laughs> picked her up for the first time. Yeah. No. I mean, that was important too. You know, she she was very much a part of those two weeks uh, as well. Um, uh, basically, all the it was important for me, especially when it came to anything with the kids, because uh, none of the kids in the movie had ever been uh, on a film set before. You know, they were just uh, 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 you know local kids, kids we found um, in the region, you know, in Texas or or or, or in the South, and and um, and they were uh, they were wonderful. But you know, it, it, it was it was the sort of thing where where you want to try to make it a, a well, you want to make it fun for them. You want to make it like a game and and. Uh, um, what was amazing, I guess, to me and you know, heartening to me was how quickly they sort of rose to the occasion, especially, you know, especially the boys playing the, the sons. Um, um, you know, something like the, the dinner table scene uh, towards the end where, where Neil has to talk to his kids before he leaves. Uh, you know, we had versions of that scene in the script, but, um, but then you know, we also kind of made sure to I, you know, I would do takes of the scene where where I would tell uh, you know the oldest boy uh, uh, Luke, who's playing Rick, um, you know, uh, well don't you know don't don't accept this for an answer. Just keep prodding, keep asking him why is he doing this, why is he doing this, and 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 uh, and the kid would just keep asking, and I could see Ryan getting very uncomfortable in his seat, <laughs> and and it was this sort of amazing thing, you know, that kind of uh, that you sort of hope happens. Uh, and again, I don't even know if any of those takes are in. Certainly, those lines aren't in the film, but you know, maybe certain moments, certain rea visual reactions are in the film. But it, it just uh, we basically spent a whole night just kind of doing every variation of that scene that we could, and trying to give each person at the table a little bit of a 
a swerve moment to just see. You always want to kind of see what happens. You're there, all you know, set up and shooting. You want to make sure you don't leave any uh, any money on the table, so to speak. Claire also does a remarkable job, and I wonder how you'd arrived at her because I think Americans mainly knowing her from The Crown. Yeah. Um, uh, not thinking because because Janet is such a Midwestern, mm -hmm. no nonsense woman and and quite complicated. How did you arrive at Claire? Well, Claire sort of knocked me out with a uh, with a reading that she did of one of Janet's interviews um, that uh, uh, that she that she selected. It wasn't something in the script. I loved it so much. I loved the reading so much that uh, you know I not only wanted to cast her, I wanted to put that interview in the movie. And um, and so it's it's actually a, 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 it sort of got abbreviated into the interview that she gives outside her lawn um, after after the mission's done near the end of the movie. Um, but she just sort of, I don't know, she became this Midwestern woman of the 60s. She became, uh, uh, even just in this reading, just um, uh, everything I would have hoped, uh, you know, kind of Janet could be on screen, but more as well. You know, she, she has a way of, uh, Claire, of, of investing even the smallest moments with emotion um, and... Uh, and and uh, and loading uh, uh, you know the, the the sort of smallest details and moments with real significance, and yet it all feels effortless. You know, you don't really see her acting. Um, similar with Ryan. Um, so I just I don't know. I had an instinct that the two of them would would gel, and and, and that that could be really something special. Um, you never know for sure, of course, until you sort of get on set with them. But they. They both share this insane work ethic and, and also this willingness to try and experiment on set. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's so remarkable about Claire is that you know, even though she was playing a character that's so removed from herself, regionally, you know, uh, time period-wise, experience-wise, uh, she, uh, even when we were, you know, kind of would take these swerves from the scripted scene to an improvised scene or do things that were you know, almost kind of purely documentary in feeling, she was just always constantly able to, 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 to run with it and make it her own and stay in character and, and, uh, uh, and constantly give her fellow actors things to work with. I mean, she's just incredibly instinctive. Um, um, you know, a lot of times you find actors are either sort of the polished thespians but lack that kind of instinct, or they are very instinctive, sort of going on gut actors, but maybe can't quite nail exactly this line at this moment, and she can do both. That's like the difference between symphony music, symphonic or uh, classical musicians and, say, jazz musicians. Yeah. There's a lot of great classical ones can't improvise mm -hmm. and, back and, and so forth. Yeah. Similar vibe, I think. Yeah, she somehow masters both. I know, I'm sure the audience is itching to ask questions, but before I turn over, I just want to turn over to you. I just want to ask a couple of more filmy kind of questions. I've been to the Smithsonian and seen those original, seen the original <clears throat> um, Mercury and, and Gemini and Apollo spacecraft, and the first thing that strikes you is that how tiny they are and fragile they are. Yeah. And in, I, I loved the, your approach from the, from the first test pilot sequence, mm -hmm. which is a great opening, through all the flights, instead of treating it like some yippee adventure, you really take a, uh, give us a raw, visceral, harrowing uh, feeling, of, a sensation of what it was like. And I was wondering, technically, how did you do, you do create the impression that we're in there with him when these teeny, tiny little mm -hmm. capsules, and I think that was shot on six, was that shot on 16 millimeter, and then mm -hmm. later you went to 35 millimeter, IMAXE, whatever. Mm -hmm. But did you have, did your production designer, did it, did it break open? I, this is kind of just a nerd question. Yeah. How did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, yeah, no, he, uh, so, well, he built everything 
all these capsules he built to scale because um, we were very adamant about not making them camera friendly, so to speak, not making them bigger than they would normally be. Um, uh, so you could really, uh, it felt like in movies, to me, it always felt like I could sense when space had been made for a camera to be put in, and it just, you know, it, felt, it always winds up get, giving the impression of these things being roomier than they are when they're really not. They're really like coffins. Um, and, um, but then, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd occasionally have, you know, like a, a panel or a wall that would sort of be able to come out so we could sort of, you know, stick, uh, uh, stick the, the back end of a camera in there. Uh, but we were using a lot of very small cameras. The Aton Minima is a tiny little 16 millimeter camera uh, you can use that we would uh, sometimes use for POVs. Um, uh, our DP would, uh, Linus, who was operating himself, he would dress up in, in the spacesuit and sort of crawl in and just sort of, you know, film side by side and up and down. And that would give you a lot of that sort of subjective uh, photography. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, with everything else, um, I mean, it was also just a matter of trying to do it all in camera to not sort of rely on green screen or, or anything like that. Um, so, you know, so we, we, we had these capsules. Uh, they tended to be on motion control systems so they could sort of move when we needed them to, shake when we needed them to shake. Um, uh, you know, we'd have lights outside the capsules you know, representing basically sunlight, you know, directional sunlight uh, when we needed it. And then, and then big LED screens that would kind of, uh, you know, that where we would, basically play the imagery you would see out the windows or, or from the tip of the spacecraft, you know, so you'd see the sky or you'd see space or the moon or what have you. Um, and uh, so you kind of want to create a little bit of a, a ride for the actors, you know, uh, uh, as well. You want everyone on set to kind of be feeling what the audience would hopefully feel, but, but, um, but it just means you have to do that much more preparation in advance. You have to kind of, in a way, you're doing your visual effects before you shoot mm. rather than after. Um, and you're trying to sort of design these sequences um, uh, well in advance uh, so that you can kind of execute when you're, when you're on there. It becomes a lot of choreography of when it moves versus when the light switches from left to right and when, when, uh, when you're at what point of the LED footage on screen and what level of shake and, um, you know, uh, and then of course with the dialogue and the lines and everything, this very technical jargon, most of which is I mean, almost all of which is just from comms, you know, in terms of the mission dialogue. It's almost all the exact transcripts um, or, or pulled from the transcripts. So, um, yeah, it was tricky. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know. Okay, let's give you a chance. We've got microphones on either <clears throat> side, so if I could ask for some hands, we'll pick two or three to begin with and uh, so we can keep it moving. Uh, thank you so much for a very immersive experience. I mean, it's, I used... My, my aspiration as a kid was to be an astronaut, so it's kind of fulfilled a, a vision for that. Um, I wanted to ask about the actual sound mix of this film, because it's the intimacy. What, I, what struck me about this movie, it's such an intimate film. I mean, obviously, when I came into it, I was thinking of the right stuff in Apollo 13, which, again, this could be compared to, but it's, it stands on its own as a much more intense experience. And I just wanted to ask you about the when you were putting the sound mix together for this particular film. Uh-huh. Um. Uh, well, I, I mean, I was very lucky to have a, a great sound team, um, for sure. I, I, I think especially because we knew from the outset that we were going to shoot a lot of it from inside the capsule, um, and those windows only show you so much, you know? So we knew that there would be a lot of instances where sound would be really the main storyteller in, in, in the scene. Um, and, uh, and I liked that kind of idea, that sort of, you know, sort of approaching it almost like a submarine movie or a tank movie or something, where you're playing with that idea of claustrophobia and, and hearing you know, uh, almost the monster outside the window you know, kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and so it was trying to find a balance, I guess, between 
you know, total reality and, you know, what you would actually be hearing in real life, and then I guess what I'd call uh, the emotional reality, where you try to, uh, you try to sort of make the audience feel themselves like they are in, you know, I can't physically put this, you know, lift this theater off into space, but with sound, it is this, this three-dimensional medium, can you, can you give that impression? Um, and uh, so, so Eileen uh, Lee, who was our, our sound effects uh, designer, um, she uh, spent a lot of time going to launches, uh, first off, going to sort of SpaceX launches at the Cape and rocket tests in Texas and just recording those sounds, um, uh, trying to get close up and recording the thrusters and, and the various rumbles and shakes. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, when it came to sort of the dials and the spacesuits, it was also trying to find a similar kind of verisimilitude. Um, uh, 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 some of the other uh, sound engineers spent time with some of the actual uh, 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 test pilot suits or, or moonwalk suits um, that, that some of the astronauts wore, just so you could kind of see what the oxygen would sound like going through that, what the you know cooling tubes would sound like, all those sort of things. So you wind up creating a kind of bed of real sounds, so to speak, and then you mix them together and try to augment them with with music or with um, you know in some cases sounds that wouldn't be literal, things like uh, like animal sounds or, or, or you know, sounds of tanks or sounds of warfare, explosions, whatnot. You try to sort of uh, pick and choose where, where you want to create a little bit of that sensory overload um, uh, and, then, and then where you want to pare back and obviously where you want to go fully silent. So it just became a little bit of this, um, you know, this interplay for us of trying to find that, that balance. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, you mentioned the responsibility that Ryan felt um, portraying a real person and about the way you worked with improvisation as a director. And I wondered how bound or restri restricted, I haven't read the book, but how bound or restricted you felt by the, the pressure of representing a real person's life and how, how, whether there were points where you wanted to take it in a different direction or, or break out of those bounds? Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a way, that was a big kind of balancing act as well. I think uh, the whole way through was, was, was uh, um, and, and I guess in a way, since we didn't know at the outset exactly what, you know, what our bounds would be uh, in that sense, it, it really became that much more important to do as much research as possible so that by the time we were shooting, if we could feel like we knew these people uh, on some sort of intimate level by the time we were shooting, then, then, it, then it does become kind of like knowing your character, even if it's a fictional character, that you sort of feel a little bit of the, the um, uh, you know the character well enough that you know that anything you do, even if it's not exactly uh, you know, a transcript or a com or something, uh, is going to at least reflect the spirit of that character or who that person really was. Um, and, um, but I think it was also why it was important to us, you know, Every draft of the script, uh, certain cuts of the movie, and then also in many cases when we were shooting on set, to uh, you know, on the one hand, to to try to kind of uh, give ourselves the freedom to play around and experiment, but but on the other hand, to surround ourselves with uh, uh, people who would know the reality. You know, so uh, Neil's sons would come to set a lot, uh, and they watched cuts of the movie, and kind of helped us find that balance. Um, uh, you know, certainly fellow astronauts. Whenever it came to any technical sort of mission stuff, I, you know, I'd often really feel lost about what switch was what. And um, so to have, you know, an actual Apollo astronaut there or someone like, like Al Warden or Mike Collins or Buzz or someone to actually kind of tell us it'd be this switch and not that switch, um, 
you know, those are things you don't want to improvise with. <laughs> um, so, Didn't uh, you have a lot of people doing cameos who were, you know, related to Neil or to the space program? Yeah, or? well, they, would, they were on set so often that it sort of felt like uh, it would be, uh, <laughs> I sort of asked them if they wouldn't mind, um, um, since I knew they would know what to do and what to look like. Um, in Mission Control, uh, uh, both of Neil's sons are in Mission Control. Um, uh, the little in-joke I think we had is that Mark Armstrong, Neil's son, um, who you see earlier in the film stealing the squawk box from his mom during Gemini 8 is, is, the, is the guy in Mission Control who turns off the squawk box on, uh, <laughs> on his mom. So <laughs> felt like uh, getting to reenact his bad days as a kid. <laughs> was it surreal when Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins came to the set? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, uh, that was very surreal. It was surreal enough when, uh, you know, be before, I remember before they came in person, we would occasionally call them up. Josh had spent a lot of time with them when writing the script, and, and uh, questions would come up, you know, of, uh, uh, so just even just seeing the name on the phone, Mike Collins or Buzz Aldrin, was already sort of threw me for a loop. But I, I'll always remember when they actually came to set, we were shooting in Florida, and, uh, and so we had uh, the actors playing them. We had Corey Stoll and, and Lucas Haas uh, fully in suit, you know, in Apollo uh, uh, suits, uh, suiting up for launch. And, and there were Buzz and Mike kind of walking up, and it was, uh, it was surreal. It was, uh, but it was amazing. I mean, I remember we were shooting in the real, we were shooting, we were shooting in the real building that the astronauts came out of, the real doorway that they came out of to go to the, to go, to go to the launch pad. They were going into the exact van that they drove into, which now is in a museum doesn't work anymore, so we couldn't shoot the van driving, but we could shoot it parked there and have them come in. Um, you know, so all this stuff was real, and then, and then, and then to have Buzz and Mike there uh, kind of by the camera's side, it, it, uh, it was a little goosebumpy. yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. <clears throat> I, uh, it was interesting to see the international reaction to the moon landing from all around the world and the way that it was celebrated and also to get a clip of John F. Kennedy talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that was added to the draft after November 2016. Oh, um, no, it, it wasn't the, the um, uh, I'm trying to think actually when, uh, uh, oh, so, so actually what wound up happening was, uh, um, so you hear a little bit of Severied, you hear a little bit of this famous conversation between Walter Cronkite and Eric Severied um, about, you know, uh, this the sort of lines of, you know, that they've peered into another life um, that we can't follow. Um, and I remember that was in the early drafts of the script as they lifted off, and that then gave way to archival footage of, of uh, we used to have uh, some archival footage also of Splashdown. So it wasn't just kind of people watching the landing, but it was uh, Splashdown and, and kind of, you know, uh, 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 the astronauts sort of, you know, the van, some of those famous images of the van kind of driving through crowds, uh, snapping photos and stuff as they went on their way to quarantine, the, the airstream. Um, and, uh, and then I think when we were cutting the movie, it just felt actually to kind of, uh, it felt more powerful to um, fully let go of the astronauts at that point, to just only live in the crowds, so to speak, and, and, uh, um, and, and of course make sure it was, it was a view of crowds all over the world. I, I meant more the political idea in the sense that the idea that America could be a place that the whole world celebrates and a president could be positive about the future. I wondered if uh, <laughs> that felt more important to put in from the election of Donald Trump in November 2016. No, I, d I didn't think of it that way, no. <laughs> but, nice uh, try. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask, whoop, whoop. Yes, can we get the mic to him? 
Meanwhile, I'll just ask quickly, yeah. did, do you use any NASA archive footage or, um, and twiddle around with it, or was well, it all? Well, that, that, that stuff is all ar archive footage of, uh, of, uh, of, of the, the international reaction. Um, no, but the, uh, the actual landing and all that. Uh, no, well, the, uh, the, there are a few, um, there's a couple of shots during the launch that uh, parts of which are archival, you know, so, so we wound up kind of uh, uh, finding this old 70 millimeter um, footage uh, uh, of, uh, of, of some of the Apollo launches that it took us years to find, sort of buried in some basement in Huntsville, Alabama, and 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 uh, I remember it was this kind of eureka moment when we found uh, when we found it. Um, and a lot of it is in a special kind of military gauge where we had to find a special projector to even be able to play it. And it's a kind of special tall, kind of uh, 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 you know taller even than Academy ratio um, uh, uh, framing. And so uh, so it had to be expanded, it had to be altered, it had to be. Um, you know, played with a lot, but uh, but it gave us a base um, for for at least a few of the uh, a few of the wider uh, or uh, actually some close-ups too. Just a handful of basically the Saturn liftoff shots. Um, uh, so it was kind of a great find to be able yeah. to oh, um, uh, stumble on that. We were, we were very happy to 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 find it. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Hi, uh, incredible movie. Loved it. Uh, I want to ask, uh, why do you think it's taken 50 years to tell the story of Apollo 11 on the big screen? And as a follow-on, do you think that this movie can go some way to convincing the doubters that this incredible story really happened? <laughs> I don't know if you'll ever convince those uh, the, the, the doubters, but maybe, um, or, or they'll see, they'll say, "Hey, it can be faked." See, you know, um, I, uh, the, what, what I felt when trying to what what I felt when trying to make it was, uh, uh, I feel like if you ever had doubt. Uh, before I think trying to make this movie maybe would have dispelled any doubt because you know we found it was hard enough to try to halfway fake you know a few seconds of the moon landing uh, <laughs> or, or the moonwalk uh, so to think of faking the entire live stream you know live broadcast of several hours uh, for the entire world uh, on live TV in 1969 um, you know uh, suddenly it makes Kubrick even more impressive than than he already is. Um, so, uh, uh, but the, uh, yeah, I don't know actually about, you know, it, it was this funny thing. I was kind of surprised myself too when, when, they, when the producers first kind of asked me about Neil Armstrong. It's like, what, you know, what, I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, this chapter in American history has been approached from different angles, you know, with, uh, with various movies and, and there have been TV reenactments um, of, of, uh, of, of the Apollo 11 mission. But um, in terms of the big screen, I, you know, I, I mean, part of it, I think, maybe is just that the myth has become so unapproachable, you know, that there's, there's uh, uh, you know, sometimes people would sort of ask me, well, why are you doing, you know, Neil Armstrong, the moon landing, it's all kind of, it's a little dull, isn't it? It's just sort of, you know, we know what happened, and it all kind of was a success, and, um, and I think that that's actually part of, part of this burnished image that we sort of get from the, from the moon landing, that it was such an astounding success, and Neil himself was such a private individual that we just sort of have this mask, you know, kind of we have this image that's just a, kind of a blank image um, um, that doesn't suggest, to, you know, all the humanity and ups and downs and tragedies and whatnot that, you know, doubts and uncertainties that, that you know, of course had to accompany it, but it was still sort of a surprise to me when doing the research um, how much was there um, and, and realizing how little I had actually known. 
he was so quiet and, and modest as well, at least public and restrained publicly. Yeah. I think it's really inspiring to see a film that shows us him as a human being and shows us what, you know, instead of the iconic symbolic Neil Armstrong, that heroism is about perseverance and courage and, mm -hmm. and, and not, the, uh, well, not the celebrity. I think, well, yeah, I think sometimes we have, uh, uh, especially with Apollo 11, I think there's, an, uh, there's um, sometimes a tendency to think of these, this period in history as so removed from us and these people as superheroes who kind of, you know, um, uh, or gods, you know, who just sort of, well, you know, of course they did it because for them it was easy, you know. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's actually weirdly reassuring, I guess, weirdly inspiring, more, more, even more inspiring to find out the extent to which, you know, they were not gods, they were not superheroes, they were at times fallible, uh, fragile human beings, and how fraught with, with failure this success story really was, you know. So that's, I think, um, at least from a modern perspective, it gives me, in some ways, some comfort. <laughs> well, you're inspiring, Damien. Thank you for a wonderful film. And thank, thank you. you for spending some time with us and sharing the backstory. Thanks so of course. much. Thanks and so thank much. thank you all.